Wonderful. Simon, you have written six books, including the fantastic brand new Justice. You've uh, most recently written The Good Country Equation. You have been policy strategy advisor to governments of 56 countries. And that means when you call a country good, it surely means something. Tell us, what is the Good Country Index? Well, let me tell you what I mean by good, first of all. We'll, we'll, we'll take this in small steps. Um, one of the things that I'm always careful to say about the Good Country Index is that this is good the opposite of selfish, not good the opposite of bad. So the countries that come at the bottom of the Good Country Index are not bad countries. They're just countries that, for whatever reason, tend to contribute less to the world outside their own borders. And the good countries, the ones at the top, are the ones that somehow manage to harmonize their domestic and their international responsibilities. So on the whole, they look after their own people and their own slice of territory, but they also manage to contribute something um, to, to humanity and the planet. And, and that, I argue, is really the, the gold standard of good governance in the 21st century, because otherwise, if we let the global commons, the environment, the planet, the rest of the world go hang while we look after our own people, then uh, that's a kind of government's uh, suicide note to the planet. And that's the reason why we're in so much trouble today. So the Good Country Index is an attempt to bring people's attention to the fact that the most important thing about a country isn't simply that it does the right thing for its own people. It has wider responsibilities than that. It must try to contribute something uh, to our collective well-being, because if nobody does that, then we're really in trouble. Your most recent book, Simon, um, which I have enjoyed reading, The Good Country Equation, it has the challenging subtext, how we can repair the world in one generation. Now, I understand from you that it is not as it seems on the surface. So may I ask you to elaborate? Yes, there's a reason why I say very specifically in one generation. That's not, I hope, just a wild claim. Uh, broadly speaking, the, the good country equation, this uh, little formula at the center of the book, is an argument that says you can terrify yourself by writing lists of all of the challenges that humanity is, is facing in, in our modern age. And uh, without drawing breath, I could write you a list of 30 challenges from climate change and pandemics all the way down to small arms proliferation and, and abuses of human rights. Um, but the reality of the matter is that underlying all of those individual challenges, there are really two big problems. The first one is the way that countries behave, and the second one is the way that people behave. So let me just unpick that very, very briefly. The way that countries behave is that they simply don't collaborate enough. And um, that's important because these challenges, any one of those challenges, take climate change, for example, or take the pandemic, are self-evidently bigger than any individual country. America can't fix climate change. Sri Lanka can't fix the pandemic. In order for us to be able to fix or even make sensible progress against these challenges, we have to work together as a community. Otherwise, the resources that we bring to bear against these challenges are just too weak. And we do sometimes but we don't do nearly often enough or nearly consistently enough. The United Nations is forever begging and pleading to its member states to work together to tackle these challenges, but they do too little, too late, and grudgingly. Why is that? Well, it's just the culture of, of, of national government. We're, we're still, the nations of the world, we're still configured the way we were 300 years ago when the Treaty of Westphalia was signed. We still see each other and see ourselves as warring, competing tribes whose main job is to steal a march on each other. America first, India first, Germany first, they're all the same. 
uh, doing uh, the best thing for their own people, which is absolutely correct, but then somehow forgetting everybody else's people, which is absolutely incorrect. So the first part of the equation is we somehow need to find a way of changing the culture of governance from fundamentally competitive to fundamentally collaborative. And collaborating doesn't mean forgetting competition. It doesn't mean that we have to lose progress. It doesn't mean that we have to lose money. What I've been able to show over the years advising governments on their policies is that you can do both. It's just that nobody does. And then the second half of the equation, all of those challenges are caused by us, by the behavior of people. Again, whether it's climate change or mass migration or terrorism, it's always people. And if people are the problem, then people are the solution. And the reason why we behave the way we do, the reason why we behave in ways that make these challenges worse and make them persist is because of the way that we've been educated, the way that we've been brought up. So the other thing I call for in the book is a new global compact on educational values and virtues and principles that the whole world can agree on in a big online conversation. So we can say, look, it doesn't matter whether it's Sri Lanka or Guatemala, we all agree that our children need to learn these following values. And then we, uh, we insert those values into the education systems all over the world, and we build a new generation that will run towards the global challenges instead of running away from them, which is what I'm afraid our generation has done, Dilhan. So, so we, we need to, if you like, uh, reprogram uh, humanity. We need to uh, bring children up in a way that's appropriate for the age that we're living in and the challenges that we're going through. And if we can do that, we really can start to fix things in just one generation. That's uh, enormously encouraging. And I must say that uh, I, I really enjoyed reading your book, but uh, looking at uh, recent developments, the last few months have shown us, uh, Simon, that uh, our system is truly broken in terms of the fact that everything that most people valued uh, really have, has been absolutely useless in helping us to confront this uh, uh, and really overcome this, this challenge that we have. So um, in that context, the world, surprisingly, whilst everything you say makes so much sense, the world has become even more fragmented in the past uh, month. So you've obviously thought about it. So uh, please tell us how we could work towards the kind of systems change that we need to, to overcome future challenges. I think systems change comes as a result of cultural change. I think it's very difficult to fix systems directly, particularly global systems, because nobody has the authority to go along and, and redesign the United Nations. And in any case, it would take decades. I think the UN is great for what it does. And it's a very, very valuable uh, partner to humanity. But for sure, reform is badly and urgently needed. You say that the system is broken. I don't see it quite as bad as that. Um, I think the system has shown its weaknesses, as it often does, and it's also shown its strengths. I mean, we we are now starting to see the release of uh, vaccines for COVID uh, in record time. And let's not forget that the development of those vaccines is a victory for international collaboration and cooperation. Almost all of the companies that have, that have uh, achieved such a remarkable success in such a remarkably short time have done so via their international networks. There are areas where humanity is brilliant at co collaboration and coordination, particularly in scientific, academic, and uh, medical areas. And despite what Donald Trump uh, likes to say, the World Health Organization uh, is one of the bodies that works really well. Lots of parts of the international plumbing and wiring uh, we take for granted because we don't see them. And the reason we don't see them is because we're just not aware of how efficiently they're functioning every day. So I think that the system is creaking, and I think that loud creaks from the system are essential because humanity over history has demonstrated that it never gets up off its 
bum and starts reacting uh, to problems unless and until they look really, really serious. We have a long and noble history of reacting at the 11th hour and the 59th minute. The thing that worries me about that at this point is that unfortunately, atmospheric CO2 has about a 10-year lag to it. So 11.59 p.m. might be far too late already for climate change, but we've got to try. I think what's missing still is a bit of a sense of urgency. But if it doesn't sound too uh, distasteful to say so, I do think that the pandemic has been very, very useful to us because it's shown us in the most dramatic form uh, imaginable that we need to work together if we're going to fix things. But globalization isn't a choice. It's the direction of human progress. And we just need to make it better, fairer, more effective and more efficient than it has been in the past. And um, I think the other thing about the pandemic is that it's shown all of us uh, as human beings around the world how similar we all are. I, like everybody else, like people in Sri Lanka, like people in Ethiopia, have been fixed to the TV every night watching human beings just like me all over the world suffering in the same way, facing the same challenges, tackling them differently. And that's such a valuable reminder to all of us. We are one species. We have our cultural differences, which are wonderful, but we're fundamentally still the same animals living on the same planet. And that's so useful. It's also showed us in a slightly um, more frightening way that we Homo sapiens, we have no special dispensation to survive. A little virus could come along at any minute and wipe us out. And recognizing our own mortality in that way, I think is very useful for things like climate change. Part of the reason we've become so complacent about climate change and so complacent about all of these challenges is because deep down inside, we think we're immortal. We don't think that human beings could ever be wiped out. And the pandemic has showed us, actually, yes, we can. And that's really, really important. Simon, you talk a lot about education. Uh, and its importance. Uh, if there were, I'm sure there isn't any one single element, but if there were to be one priority that the world could focus on, would it be education or what, else, what, what would you say would be the catalyst to um, the change that we need? Education is always the answer to almost every question at this level, simply because at this level, as I said before, you are talking about the behavior of people. And the only really efficient way of influencing people's behavior on the large scale is through education. Um, we all know that if you try to change the behavior of adults, uh, it's a very difficult and very frustrating process because all of us, once we get past the age of about 30, we become so convinced of everything. We think we found all the answers and we tend to spend all of our energy resisting calls to change things instead of contemplating them seriously. Children, of course, are, are completely the opposite. Children are like sponges. And they soak up any knowledge, any information, any values that surround them. And this is, uh, uh, of course, makes children extraordinarily vulnerable to social engineering and manipulation of all kinds. And that's why the education of children is quite rightly very carefully protected. It's, it's ring-fenced. But the simple fact uh, remains that uh, I think social engineering on a grand scale is precisely what we need now. I think it's pretty much the only thing that can save humanity uh, from uh, its own destructive instinct. The reality is that we still bring up children in ways that made sense before the world became this globalized, before we became this interconnected and this interdependent. What goes on in Sri Lanka has an impact on every other country on earth. What goes on in every other country on earth has an impact in Sri Lanka. We can't deny the fact um, that, that we, we, we can't carry on claiming that countries are, are little private islands sitting in their own independent oceans unconnected from the rest of the world. And yet the way that we bring up children is still so inward looking. We bring up our children, as I like to say, with minds that microscope instead of minds that telescope. And this has to be changed. Otherwise, we'll continue repeating the same mistakes. So um, what, what I call for in the book 
um, is, uh, as I say, this, this project, which I call The Good Generation, which is basically a great big online global conversation where all of us from every single one of the 195 odd countries in the world get together. And this is now possible through the magic of artificial intelligence. It sounds sinister. There's nothing intelligent about it. It's just a way of moderating a very large conversation in a very efficient way. It doesn't include its own ideas. It just listens to everybody's ideas and uh, collects them together and summarizes them and clusters them so that you can have 10 million people having a conversation and get a sense of where people are going and what are the things that they care about. So what I'm trying to do at the moment is to uh, organize and orchestrate this big online conversation where uh, children and parents and teachers and wise experienced people from every single country on earth can start having this big online conversation and ask the simple question, how do we want our children to be brought up everywhere? What are the, what's the basic set of uh, virtues and values and principles and learnings that we all agree we had to do without, but our children should not have to do without in such a way that they will run towards the grand challenges when they leave school rather than running away from them. And you have children already like Malala, uh, like Greta Thunberg, the Swedish climate activist, who demonstrate that if you do start teaching these children these values about the connected world they live in today, before they've even left school, they will start running towards those challenges instead of running away from them. Greta Thunberg is already a more effective climate activist before she's even left school than most of us have been in the whole of our lifetimes. And that's because in Sweden, they teach kids about climate change. So we know that it works, but I think that the situation is now sufficiently urgent that we need to say, okay, let's do it everywhere right away. And we've got the technology. I think we have the goodwill. And I think that we need to do it. And, and just one last thing to say about the Good Generation Project. If anybody hearing that is inclined to say, yes, it's a lovely idea, but you'll never get uh, countries to agree on something as sensitive as the education of children, because cultural differences will get in the way, religious differences will get in the way, traditions will get in the way. Well, of course, they will try to get in the way. But remember that we've done this kind of thing before. Back in 1948, the whole world agreed on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. In 1945, the whole world agreed on the UN Charter, two of the most noble, finest documents that humanity has ever produced, signed up to enthusiastically and voluntarily by every, almost every single country on the planet. And I would argue that human rights is a more sensitive topic, a more culturally sensitive topic than the education of children. And yet we can do it when we have to. And I would suggest that 2021 is a world in which there's as much stress and as much urgency and as high a perception of that stress and urgency as there was in 1948 or 1945. So I think we can do this. We just need to, we just need to get started. So Simon, uh, I think what you're saying clearly demonstrates the potency of uh, an individual uh, young girl as much as uh, governments and businesses and, and the necessity for each of them to be involved because I guess, well, clearly we are all stakeholders. Now in that situation, you know, a lot of people talk about when are we going back to normal? And uh, I'm, my question to you is clearly what in the post-COVID era, it cannot be business as usual, With uh, even with this miracle of uh, international collaboration and vaccines. How do you see the role of business in particular um, when we come out of this, this darkness? I think business plays a very uh, crucial role in all of this. In fact, so important um, that I'll probably need another book um, to go through that. In, I, I'm already starting to think that the good country equation probably ought to be the first book of a trilogy, because if the fundamental mission, if you like, behind 
that book and behind my whole career, behind everything I do, is changing the culture of governance from fundamentally competitive to fundamentally collaborative, because that's the key to resolving all of our challenges, then you've got to ask yourself, who is uh, primarily responsible, or rather, who has the ability to influence the behavior of people and governments and organizations all over the world? And the first answer is governments and countries, and that's been the first book. The second answer is corporations, because of course, they uh, have an influence, a direct influence over the lives of nearly as many people as, as governments do. And in some ways, their influence is more direct, because you spend probably more time dealing directly with your employer than you do dealing directly with your government. And then the third, uh, class of influence, if you like, is uh, is religions and philosophies. So uh, if if I can find the time, the second book will probably be about the role of corporations in doing this. And the third book, which I won't allow myself to write until I'm 70, is uh, the role of religions, because you're, nobody should be allowed to write books about religion until they're 70. Um, but the corporate, uh, the, the corporate argument is hugely important. One of the things that I point out in the Good Country Equation is that in many senses, corporations have already shown the way forward. Corporations, for example, way back in the 1970s began to demonstrate that it's perfectly possible to compete and to collaborate at the same time. Remember co-optition, it was the buzzword in the 1970s. I think this came from the Japanese auto industry, where they showed that the best way to drive a, a market towards growth is to have companies both competing against each other in an honorable way and collaborating uh, to build a more efficient and effective marketplace. Now that co-optition is a very powerful idea, and it demonstrates that you can human beings are still allowed to compete, which is a very valuable and very fundamental part of their nature, but also collaborate on the essentials in such a way that they don't destroy each other or destroy or lay waste to their marketplace as a result of their cooperation, uh, of, their, of their competition rather. So that experiment of cooperation, I would argue, is about 30 years overdue between governments. And that's one of the things we need to see now. I think the other uh, important lesson uh, from, from corporates and where they are, again, about 20 or 30 years ahead of government. Uh, is in corporate social responsibility. The simple idea that it's not enough to make good products and sell them at a good price for a company to earn its right to inhabit the space it inhabits on the planet. You are a member of society and therefore you have obligations to society. This is a principle that Dilma, amongst uh, many, many other companies, has understood very clearly for very many years. Have governments understood this? No. Governments seem to believe that they have, as corporations used to believe, a dispensation not to be moral. Uh, the, the, in the same way that corporations used to say, and many still do actually, our only responsibility is to deliver value to stakeholders. In the same way, you get governments saying our only uh, our only responsibility um, is to uh, is to, to ensure the safety of our citizens. That's it. Other populations, they've got governments to look after them. The planet, somebody else will look after that. And so one of the things I've uh, I've often said is that uh, today we. We have to see the mandate of people in power, whether that's within corporations or within government or within society more broadly, as a dual mandate. It used to be single. It used to be if you're in a position of power or responsibility, you're responsible for your own people and your own slice of territory. And if you harm other people or other territory whilst you're looking after them, that's fine. It just shows how tough you are. Today, it's a dual mandate. You're responsible for your own people, yes, and for every single man, woman, child, and animal on the planet, whether you like it or not. You're responsible for your own premises and your own territory, yes, and for every inch of the Earth's surface and the atmosphere above it and the soil beneath it, whether you like it or not. And if you don't like it, you shouldn't be in a position of power or authority because that is the rule of life on Earth today, whether we like it or not. And the sooner people begin to understand that, the sooner we'll get the right people aspiring to positions of power and responsibility because they accept that their sphere of influence as leaders 
uh, their sphere of responsibility rather is greater than their sphere of influence. It's a powerful notion, uh, Simon, and uh, I really hope this conversation uh, gains the kind of traction that it deserves. What can Sri Lanka do to to be a part of this? I think one of the first things that uh, that I would say is that countries must all play a role in ensuring that the that the that the planet is habitable and that humanity behaves sustainably these old ideas that there's a fundamental difference between big countries and small countries between rich countries and poor countries between so-called developed countries and so-called developing countries all of that is eyewash frankly we're all equally responsible for um, the future of humanity. And when I say equally, I mean that. Whether we have a population of less than a million or more than 100 million, we are equally responsible. When my message to, to, to the leaders of countries has always been the same. When you're elected to become the leader of a country, you join the team that runs the planet. You have an equal voice in the international fora, even though it may not feel like that sometimes, but certainly an equal right to speak and an equal duty speak. So Sri Lanka uh, should, when considering these things, temporarily just place to one side its size, its hard power, its ability to project military or economic power around the planet, because those things don't really count so much anymore. What counts is the voice and what counts is the example you set. So one of the nice things about the Good Country Index is that there are a large number of uh, traditionally speaking weak countries that do very well in the Good Country Index. Kenya, for example, ranked in the top 30 in the first edition. I noticed that Moldova was in the top 30 in the last edition. These phenomena keep on occurring. And what they demonstrate is that you don't have to be conventionally powerful in order to have an influence and set an example. In fact, in the age that we're living in at the moment, it's actually easier for the historic victims of uh, of colonization to act as, um, as as moral leaders than it is for the historic perpetrators of colonialism because people listen to them. A country like Australia is now more widely admired than a country like uh, the United Kingdom, for example, in, in the research I do on uh, national images. Why is that? It's because international public opinion is more interested in smaller countries that haven't set the rules for, for, for centuries. So there's huge opportunities there. The other thing I would say for to, to Sri Lanka and indeed to all countries, but especially small island nations, is that you don't have to do any of this on your own. Uh, there's something about the mindset of competition that whenever I speak to the governments of countries, especially smaller countries, they always frame their challenge as being an almost impossible vertical challenge where they somehow have to get themselves heard in this very busy world surrounded by much busier players. But that's not the way the world works. It's not Sri Lanka against the world. It's Sri Lanka plus whoever you choose to collaborate with against the challenges. So if Sri Lanka decides that it wants to play a role in fixing climate change or migration or the pandemic, then the first thing it should do is not figure out how little Sri Lanka can do that, but figure out who it could team up with, who it could influence, who it could be in, in a, with whom it could practice entrepreneurial multilateralism, where you say to yourself, actually, why don't we just get together with all the other places in the world that begin with the letters SL? Let's get together with uh, St. Louis in Missouri um, uh, and, uh, and uh, Sierra Leone and South London and St. Lucia, right? And we'll form a, a random team of places around the world with different experiences, different size, different soft power, different hard power. And we'll tackle climate change and see how far we get because with random teams, you can often produce much more innovative and creative and imaginative and surprising results than you ever would with the G20 or the United Nations. So small countries can do anything these days. And that's why the world is such an exciting place. Do you think that the 1970s concept of, an, of a non-aligned movement, that that uh, might have some relevance to this uh, 
new form of collaboration amongst countries? It's an interesting thought. Uh, the problem with non with the non-alignment movement is that it's fundamentally political and therefore fundamentally tribal. It's about we follow this model unlike everybody else who follows that model. And I think that the sooner we can abandon our political and national ideologies and just set aside domestic politics politics and set aside these eternal tribalisms of capital versus labor of left versus right of local versus global and just understand that we're all the same people facing the same challenges and we need to work together without ideologies getting in the way and again that is perfectly possible any intelligent uh, government can can do that i would uh, i've been saying a lot recently that the most dangerous idea in the world at the moment is the idea that you're either a globalist or a localist and that you should spend your days screaming hatred on social media against the people from the other tribe this is such a dangerous idea and it makes fools of all of us because it's just not like that if you're a, a localist and you care desperately about your own country and uh, you're not so interested in the rest of the world that's fine but the next time you see a globalist don't say to yourself that globalist is the member of an enemy tribe just say to yourself that's me on a different day because in the same way that all of us if we just stop and think about it can understand that we actually sympathize with some left-wing ideas we actually sympathize with some right-wing ideas there are parts of us that fully understand what it means to be conservative and localist there are parts of us that fully understand what it means to be globalist and progressive or catholic and protestant or jewish or muslim or whatever there's parts of all of that in all of us we are all of us a microcosm of the human race and when we forget that that's when the trouble starts Simon you have shared some incredibly powerful ideas and you know having read what you've written in the good country equation i can only um hope but actually hope with a lot of optimism that uh, it's going to gain currency because the way you have presented those ideas is incredibly engaging so what we are going to do in sri lanka is we are going to do our level best to share this um incredible uh, knowledge with um people in colombo and uh, around sri lanka but uh, i hope we will have the possibility to engage again we are also going to try to connect with you and see if there's some way in which we can participate in this uh, global uh, initiative that you have but please don't forget us when you start the platform because uh, we we have to be a part of it but simon arnold thank you you are an incredibly humble person of great achievement we truly value the time together thank you thank you so much still and thank you for your support